0: We are in the last um, day, if you will, of this series called How to Build Better. Relationships, and we believe not just in the terms. Again, you heard the gospel clearly this morning in terms of what Jesus has done for you. Um, This is uh, this is not just something you know that kind of secures our uh, our our everlasting eternal home in heaven with Him, but that He wants to work grace and power in and through us, and how we treat one another, Uh, because how we treat one another is a reflection of our relationship. With him, and so that's why we were doing the series to be helpful, to give helpful tools, to give helpful application um, to what Scripture has to say about uh, how we act in relationship with one another. We also know that the last two years uh, over the pandemic, um, relationships have taken a hit. Um, they've taken a hit. They've close relationships have taken a hit. Friendships have taken a hit. A lot of more division. A lot more things going on. And uh, we believe a couple things at our core. We believe. That we're only as happy as our core relationships are healthy, all right? So happy is a bad word. It doesn't really kind of encompass everything. I wish I had better words like contented or fulfilled or satisfied. Like all of them apply, right? We're only as, as those things, as we are in our core relationships, healthy. Because if our core relationships aren't healthy, uh, then we experience a lot of negativity and a lot of bad stuff and toxic stuff in the rest of of our lives however healthy relationships don't come with instructions and this is what we've been talking about over the last several weeks right healthy relationships don't come with instructions this is our theme verse our theme verse for the series comes from uh philippians 2. in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as christ jesus okay Paul goes on to say that he humbled himself, that he didn't consider who he was as God as something to be uh, leveraged as a privilege. He actually put that away and and humbled himself to become human. And so for all of us, it's it's this challenge of, do I have the same attitude? Do I have the same uh, mindset as Christ in my relationships? And we're not just talking about your great relationships, we're talking about the ones you kind of stink at right? We're talking about the ones with your adult parents and your adult children. And we're talking about the ones with your siblings. You haven't called in forever. You know, we're talking about exes, and, you know, do you view them the same way that Jesus does? And that's where it gets a little more uh, challenging. This is a statement that I brought up, I think the first week, but I actually wrote it down for today. There's, you know, there's no troubleshooting guide, right? For broken relationships. When something is broken, what do we all do? What comes with everything you purchase when it's not working right, right? It comes with not just the instructions to put it together, but the troubleshooting guide. Now, men don't read the instructions or the troubleshooting guide, okay? But oftentimes, you can pull it out. If the lights are blinking, right, uh, what do you do? If the lights are solid, what do you do? If it won't turn on, how do you reset the firmware? How do you do these things? And that's the problem is that when relationships cause, when relationships are divided, when there's fractures, uh, when there's real brokenness in relationships, and that's what we're talking about today, there's no troubleshooting guide. Now we will reach for, and we've talked about this the last few weeks, we will reach for the, uh, what I call cultural's, um, yeah, cultural's relate, relationship management toolkit. This came from a church called Gwinnett church in Atlanta. We reach for these tools to manage other people and to manage our relationships with them. Here's the problem is that they're not not healthy. They don't lead to anything good, and yet every single one of us do it. All right? We try to convince people. We think that more information, they will not see things their way anymore. They will see things the right way. Everybody with me on that? They won't just see see things their way. They'll see it my way, which is the right way. If I can convince them or convict All I've done for you, you start to lay on the guilt and the shame and the the leveraging of your relationship and your history. Maybe you coerce, which is just manipulation, right? You begin to, you know how to twist feelings and get reactions and distract and passive aggressive statements, silence, the silence treatment. These are all steps to try to coerce another. And all of us struggle with control. We want to be able to control the relationships and what other people are doing and not doing and feeling in relationships so that we can fix them. But none of these these tools work. And what's funny is that you know when someone's using a tool on you because you hate it. You hate it when they use these tools on you. But every one of us reaches for these tools to use on others, so we all have work to do. Today I'm going to talk specifically about broken and fractured relationships. Um, For you, you may not have very many of these, which is, listen just praise God for it. For some of you, you may have just a trail behind you, a wake of fractured and broken relationships. And none of them may be your fault. Again, sometimes there are fractured and broken relationships because of what siblings have done or what parents have done or what adult children have done and choices that people have made that break and fracture things. But we want to, again, this is the goal. We want to look at God's word and we wanna deal with what does he say about how we can engage and make better and have healthy, even in those broken relationships, how can we bring them back to health if it's even possible? Here's the two primary issues we're gonna deal with today. And I could teach a sermon on both of these fully, I mean, I could do a whole series on both of these, but I'm gonna try to split the time today in talking through what I see are two primary issues we deal with in our culture. One is judgment, we live in a culture of judgment, okay? That's cancel culture, right? That's politics, that's social ideology, that's, that's us versus them, that's my TV station, your TV station, my truth, your truth, my news, your news, my facts, your facts. We live in a really thick culture of judgment. And we live in a time in which more and more of us are sort of like not just settled, but the idea of forgiveness continues to fall away as an actual priority in our lives and in our relationships. That we are so much more justified in our current culture to not forgive because it's unforgivable, right? That's just where we are. So I see these two things playing themselves out, and both of these actually became came questions uh, in early in this series, the issue of judging others, like when is it okay, when is it not okay, what does it look like, how do we do it, you know, how do we not do it, how do we, how do we love these people and not, you know, there's a whole bunch of questions that came in there, uh, forgiveness, you know, well, what if, and what if this, and what if that, because every one of us has those. So again, I'm going to kind of walk through today, hopefully answering some of those questions for you as we look through it. Um, I'm going to start... With the verse we touched on in week one. This is before Jesus taught the story and the parable and the illustration, if you will, of the speck in your brother's eye and the log or the plank in your eye. Before he goes into that, here were his words. These are are from Jesus. Read the three words out loud. Go ahead and read them. Yeah, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Right, he goes on to say, "For in the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you." I love that phrase, "the measure you use." Um, you can define that however you want. The framework you use, the, the definition you use, the, the whatever you are leveraging and using for judgments going to apply to you. Like that's, that's the, as clear as Jesus can make it. And again, he goes into a story about, why do you think you can even see a speck in their eye? Like you're only focused on that. you you're ignoring the tree branch, you know, in your own eye. And yet sometimes we, we struggle and Christians often struggle because the whole judging thing gets a little muddy when it becomes an issue that is talked about in scripture, Okay? So it's not just an opinion. I think most of us, you know, you have an opinion about something. Oh, you like that? Oh, that's gross. You guys are with me on that, right? That's, I mean, that's just an opinion judgment. You like something that I think is disgusting, right? And that's most vegetables, all right? <laughs> and so, you know, you like them, but I think it's gross, and that's just an opinion. And so, you know, we, we, can, we can disagree, and I can, can kind of have a quick little judgment about you and your taste buds and all sorts of things. But it gets muddy when it comes to script, what Scripture does say and how we then interpret it, right? Why? Because all Scripture, this comes from Paul in, in writing to Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us what is true, right? And it makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. This is what the Word of God does. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right? that's the purpose of the word of God. Like this is, this is what all of Scripture is is inspired word of God. This is what it helps us do. Or Paul tells Timothy as well, talks about the idea of what a correcting and rebuking and encouragement looks like even as you, as you preach the word of God, as as you talk about the word of God, it has this ability to do those things. So that's great. That's awesome. That's all good. The trouble comes, the muddiness comes when we begin to apply what we believe the word of God says into the other things that we have just big, important opinions on. Politics, sociology, end times, women's rights, gender identity, nationalism, and the list can go on and on and on. And it causes divisions and it causes strife and fractures in our relationships because we see the word of God say something. And because of that, we feel like it aligns with what we feel and what we believe is true. And therefore God thinks it's true. And so therefore it must be right. And the way I view about it, again, even the muddy fringe area must be right. Therefore, if I'm right, you are, what's the word? Yeah. Everybody just say it like you really mean it. What's you, what are you if I'm right? Yeah, there you go. And so we sit in judgment and yet it's really clear what Jesus said. Don't judge. You're going to be judged by the same measure that you use. So what does it mean? Well, I'm going to give you one example. For those of you that are new to the church, this might be new information to you. I'll try to skim over this since there's kids in the room. I'll skim over some of the the details, but um, this is an area, this is a passage that people who have been in the church for a while, they will often use as a leverage or an opposition to the argument of not judging because Paul tells us, and he himself gives an example, of a time in which he holds someone in judgment. This is going to 1 Corinthians uh, 5, okay? So I'm not gonna read the whole thing to you, I'm gonna give you the premise of what it is, and I'll tell you why it's such a problem for Christians. All right? So Paul judges and casts judgment, it's very clear, on someone, uh, on a man who's sexually immoral, all right? This is what's happening. It goes on if you read the first few passages. If you have it, you can open up the first few verses on your own. Again, I'll kind of use some some language up above here for the room, for the audience. Um, But the reality is is that there's something sexually immoral happening in their church with this man, and the church hasn't done anything about it. Matter of fact, he goes on to talk about how the church is sort of prideful, and really it hasn't phased them at all that this person is doing something. Paul defines what this is as not just something that's sexually immoral according to God's law, but he actually defines it as this is something even the pagans don't do. Okay, you with me? Okay, this is something even the pagans don't do. So it's not just (laughs) God's law, it's moral law, like even the pagans frown on this. And he says, you need to deal with this. He's telling the church. You need to deal with this. And here's some of the verses that come in play because Paul says, you go to verse three and four, he says, look, as though I were there, because he wasn't with them at the time, he's writing them in this letter. I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. I've already passed judgment on this person and the, and the way in which he's, he's boasted and flaunted this sin in the church and the fact that you also as a church are prideful about this. He says, you need to deal with it. And then he goes on, how do you deal with it? Well, you're going to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh or of the flesh so that, this is important, this word, you're going to hand him over and just let him do what he's doing. Just sort of hand him over to Satan and let that destruction play out. Why? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's basically saying, look, the path that he's on, the path that he's chosen, the opposition to God's word that he is, you got to deal with that. you got to deal with it as a church. And, and you need to just hand him right on over to Satan. just like, go on, man. Go right into the deep end of what you're dealing with. His path is going to lead to destruction. And then he says, you know, not only is it going to lead to destruction, he says he might be saved. Like there's a, there's a chance that by doing this, we're going to be able to see him turn back to God. But then he also says it again the second time, your boasting about this is terrible. Now, you have to imagine Paul is talking to the church, the church. He goes on to say, look, you're going to have sexually immoral people around you all the time. Like they're just, he's talking to Corinth, he's like, you guys are going to deal with this all the time. You, if you, if you just cast all of them aside, you don't have anything to do with all of them. I'm just telling you, you're, you're not going to talk to anybody, right? Cause they're everywhere. He says, that's not what I'm telling you to do. I'm talking about the fact that it's in the church and you in your pride are not dealing with it. You're not seeing it the way it doesn't grieve your heart the way it grieves God's heart. And that's a problem in the church. Now, the closest example that my mind let me go and, and, and if this offends you, I apologize. I can just go ahead and let you know I'm going to offend the snot out of you for the rest of the morning, okay? But I want you to understand, this would be similar. If many of you guys remember this several years ago, when the state of New York House, House and Senate, the state of New York House and Senate, passed a bill to abort children all the way up through their eighth month right before they're born. And when they passed the bill... The the North this or not North Carolina the New York the New York Senate and House broke into applause, broke into applause that they were able to get this bill passed. Now I don't know where you stand on that, but I'm just telling you that that what I picture Paul saying is that this is what's happening in this church. Like, this is the pride, this is the arrogance, this is the way I see you as a church responding to sin by pride, by applaud. And Paul's like, you have to deal with it. Your boasting about this is terrible. So he goes on to say, look, you can't cast it out. You, you know, that's the, when people are sinning, that's what they do. That's the, that's the only thing they know how to do. So again, I'm not casting the judgment on New York. New York, I mean, it's a, it's a pagan government. It's it's New York State. Like, you know, the fact that they passed it, did it surprise me at all? No, it didn't surprise me at all. It burdened me. But if I were to see that happen in the church, it's a whole other story. And then Paul says this later on because this is the setup. This is where Christians really struggle. He says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. It's not my responsibility to judge people who do not claim to believe what I believe, who believe in the word of God. It's not my job to judge them. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. He says it's your responsibility. God will judge those on the outside. Paul makes it very clear. Now, what does this do for us? Well, for many in the church, okay, for many, many in the church, it sets us up for failure. For many in the church, it sets us up for failure because our humanity sees a verse like this and jumps on it. Jumps on it. Why? Because look, if Steve Harvey can be a judge... You better believe I can be a judge. Matter of fact, I can clean this church up right now. You know? You imagine if you came in today and it was a big judge stand sitting up here on the on the, on, the, on, the, on the on the platform, and I just sat down with a big plaque with my name on it and be like, all right, calling you up one by one. See, this is the problem, is that it feeds our self-righteousness. A verse like this misses the heart of God. It misses the heart of the pride and the issues that the church itself was dealing with, that Paul said, you've got to be able to address these things. You as a church have got to be, you cannot let this happen. You've got to be able to deal with this inside the church. You can't deal with it outside the church, but you've got to be able to deal with this inside the church. It can't be something you're proud of. It can't be. And yet we see something like this and go, we ignore all the scriptures that tell us not to judge someone else, and we go right to 1 Corinthians 5, and go, hoo, 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 you may enter. I am ready to cast some judgment. Guys, I'm telling you, this is, this, is, this is how the enemy is going to take something that's true and real and the absolute truth of God's word and twist it to be something that we feel like, well, because his truth aligns with my truth, I get to, to be the judge of others, of their actions, of what they do. And we miss what even Jesus Christ said. The measure you use will be used against you. Here's another clear way in which Paul says it. Okay, we know how Jesus said it. Here's how Paul said it. This is the beginning of Romans chapter two. He says, look, you may think that you can, read the words out loud, condemn such people, right? Now, condemn and judge is the same thing. You may think that you, you, church, you, the Roman uh, Christians, you may think you can condemn such people. What people? Well, he's talking about all the people he just talked about in Romans 1. I'm not going to go back and read Romans 1. I gave you a wonderful comprehensive list of everyone he's talked about. Okay? Okay. The wicked the, the, the wicked, the sinful, idol worshipers, men with men, m- women with women, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, liars, malice, gossip, betrayal, insolent, proud, arrogant, foolish, heartless, dishonest, merciless, disobeying their parents, and creating new ways of sinning and encouraging others to sin. That's those people, Okay. So Paul finishes one, you know, you got to go back and read it. Romans one, all of those things. And he goes to number two and he says, look, you may think, you may think that I'm on your side. This is what Paul would say. You may think that I just gave you the loaded gun, you know, the loaded gavel to judge others. But here's what Paul says. But you're just as bad and you have no excuse why would he say that? Why would he say you're just as bad or I'm just as bad and we don't have an excuse? He's saying because you're followers of Christ. He's writing to the Christians in Rome. He's saying you are followers of the way. You are just as bad, but you don't have an excuse. They are sinners. They have an excuse. When you say they're wicked and should be punished, you're just judging yourself. You're condemning yourself for you who judge others do the very same things. Well, Matt, that's, that's, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a big list. I might have done one of those things. <laughs> They've done seven. <laughs> well, that's not how God views sin. Sin is sin. Lying, gossiping, murder, adultery. Like, there was no difference to him. The measure, the measure you use will be used against you. goes on. We know that God in his justice will punish anyone who, desert, who does such things. Any of it. Any of it. In his justice. And since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Why, why do you think you're going to avoid this? See, what happens with 1 Corinthians 5 is that it shifts our position in our mind. We go from standing on this side of the judge seat, we go from standing on this side in the courtroom as a defendant, And because he says, no, you got to clean up the church. you got to judge those inside the church. You can't let the sin go on. Well, you know what? I believe what the Bible says about this and about gender identity and about sexual orientation and about that. I believe the same thing the Bible believes. And we think for some reason that puts us behind the judge going, that's right. That's right. We're back here with him. And Paul says, no, 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 You're, you're still out there. You are still in the position to be judged. Your sin may not be the same sin, but it is sin. You don't, you don't, you didn't shift any position at all. You're going to be judged by the same measure that now you think you're using to judge others. It says, since you oh, so don't see, or don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see it's his kindness that's intended to turn you from your sin? I learned it in the King James Version. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. It wasn't his condemnation. It wasn't his judgment. It's his kindness, his tolerance, his patience that leads me to repent, that leads me away from, from sin. Again, we struggle with it because we believe we are now the judge. We get to sit in the place of the judge. Here's the problem. Scripture tells us there's only one judge, (laughs) and it's not you, and it's not me. Thank God. We don't sit on that side of the courtroom. Our justification comes from Jesus Christ alone. Our justification doesn't come from anything about us. It comes because Jesus has paid the price it becomes it it comes to us because what jesus has given to us and has done for hid the work for our benefit and for our behalf it is never condemnation that's going to bring people to god it's only his goodness his kindness his grace that leads people to repentance so how does that help us in our relationships how can I support family members and friends whose actions stand in opposition to the word of God? Whose mindset and behavior stand as clear as you can see it, as clear as you can see, they stand in opposition to the word of God. How do I not judge them? Well, you don't judge them because you are not the judge. That's it. There really is no simpler way to put it. I Listen, I have family members. Just hear the words. I have family members and friends who stand in opposition to what I believe the Scripture says clearly about abortion or women's reproductive rights, whatever everyone wants to call it today. I have friends and family members who stand in opposition to what I believe God's word says. I am not their judge. I am their brother, their sister, their father, their son, their friend. That's who I am. I have some that they stand in direct direct opposition of what God says about gender roles and and sexual attraction and marriage. I'm not going to judge them. It's not my role. Yeah, but Matt, they say they're a Christian. How could they be a Christian and believe such nonsense? I don't know. I don't know. I know there's one judge. I know there's one judge. And if they were proudful and causing issues in the church, then the church would have to deal with it because that is the church's job. But in my relationship with them, with my family, with my friends, it's not my job to judge them. Well, Matt, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. They want me to love them and support them and approve of their actions. And I'm here to tell you, I understand it's hard. I understand it's muddy. I understand that it might still cause a break in a friendship or relationship, but it's not going to be because you condemned them. Because that's not your role. Your role is on the same side of the table that they are on. It's only by the grace of Jesus. It's only by the grace and kindness and tolerance and patience of God that I stand where I stand. We're all going to be judged by God. We are all going to be held in account. They are just as much as me. And it may look different. My sin might look different than their sin, but the judgment's going to look the same. And my only justification comes because of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that's not difficult. I'm not saying that it's, hard, it's not hard to toe a line, especially in our culture. In our culture that says, no, you have to agree with me in order to love me. And the answer to that is that, no, you do not. Because I don't. I have family and friends. We are, never, we are never going to agree about this. But I love you. And I want to remain in relationship with you. Because it's only by the grace of God that, that I exist, that I am loved, that I am forgiven. I am as condemned as you are. It's the same measure that's being used. But I am repentant. I am seeking his forgiveness. That might be the only difference. And even when people stand in opposition, even when they're Christians, claim to be Christians, and they stand in opposition to something the word of God says, it is still not your role. Maybe you have to remind them that we are all going to be judged, but it's not your role to condemn them. Matter of fact, here's what Paul says again. This goes on in Romans 14. He says, why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Guys, you're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. That's it. You're all going to, like, he goes on to say, it's a personal account. It's a personal account. You have to stand for you. I will be standing for me. I can't handle your junk. I got enough junk of my own let's stop condemning each other. Decide to live in such a way that you're not going to cause another believer to stumble and fall. And yet that's what I see happening over and over and over and over again in the church. Is Christians who do not see the heart of God as kind, tolerant, patient, grace-filled. Because we all let our humanity get in the way. And the moment that somebody that we want to judge lines up with something in scripture that we believe is true. And we think that because scripture says it, because I believe it, man, we're on the right side of this equation. I get to condemn. You have missed it. You have missed it. There's no wisdom there. There's no grace. Not saying it's easy. Again, not in our culture but you have to see what the Word of God says. You have to be able to understand that with that judgment, anything you choose to use to judge someone else is going to be used on you. It's as clear as it can be written. Which brings us to one of the more difficult things, which is unforgiveness. When you are dealing with a broken and fractured relationship, I want to give you an encouragement. I I know this isn't going to sound encouraging, but I want you to understand it. Your goal, or the measurement by which you see your efforts as successful, cannot be the restoration of a relationship. It can't be. You cannot have the goal or the success of reconciliation and restoring maybe a broken relationship back to a relationship that's whole, you cannot use that as your measurement for success, why? Because you don't control the other person in the equation. Because you don't. You don't control whether they wanna continue to be married. You don't control whether they're ever gonna be a father a truly healthy father figure in your kids' lives. You don't control whether that addiction is going to be something they choose to go back to and cause pain and harm in your life. You can't control other people. And by the way, pro tip, it's a bad idea to try to. Remember we just talked about that earlier? It's a bad idea to try to. You can't. Here's the problem. When you set reconciliation or restoration up as the goal, as success, then when it doesn't happen, you believe God failed or you believe you failed. That can't be the goal. The second reason, just now that I'm on the t- on the subject, is that it might not be wise. Listen, we counsel and talk with people all the time like you know, there's sexual perversions in families where children are at risk, it may not be wise to restore that relationship. There's, there's, there's marriages that are toxic and abusive physically and across the board. It may not be wise to restore that relationship. It may not be. I'm not, I'm not telling you what God can and cannot do in the hearts and lives of people. I'm just telling you that you cannot make it your ultimate goal you can make it your direction. You can make it the the, the thing you're moving towards. You can make it your prayer of your heart because it should be. But the actual goal has to be forgiveness and no regrets. When you're talking about a broken, fractured relationship, the only thing you can control is you. Okay, I'm going to say it one more time for the people in the back. You ready? When it comes to fractured and broken relationships, the only thing you can control is who? You. You. So the goal can't be reconciliation and restoration. It's what God might do. It might be exactly what you work towards, but your steps towards it are the only thing you can control, and that is whether you're going to extend forgiveness or you're going to continue to have your hand open to reconciliation for a long, 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 long time that they never receive and never take. No regrets, no regrets. That's your goal. Your goal is forgiveness and no regrets. Now I'm gonna go ahead and just, you guys may wanna take some notes or shoot some pictures of the screen. I'm gonna read a lot of scripture. I'm gonna let scripture do the talking on this subject because there's no way, shape and form I can even give you, personal great examples of how I've mastered this, because it hasn't happened. All right? Forgiveness and no regrets is the path. It is the goal that we need to be able to have in our minds, because we cannot control the other side of the equation. Let's look at some of God's Word. Personal offenses. We read this the first week, Colossians 3. Make allowances for each other's faults, And forgive anyone who offends you. Why? Because remember, the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive other people. Guys, I'm telling you, there's a lot of people in here that are sitting in the place of offense with other brothers and sisters in Christ because you've chosen to be offended by something they said, something they did, something they didn't align, something they didn't do. They didn't call you back. They didn't say something. They said something wrong. You've made zero allowances for their faults to be human. And the scripture's saying, yeah, pretty much for anyone who offends you, you have to give forgiveness. That's what we're called to do. Keep going. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone? who sins against me. Seven times. Now, just to go ahead and give you some cultural context, you know, he was kind of over double what the law required him to do. Three times was the law. And that's where we get three strikes, you're out, you know. Three times was the law. It's all that was required. So he went one more than double. And he was proud of himself. Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone who offends me? Seven times. Here's Jesus' response, nope, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, why did Jesus give them a math equation? It wasn't wasn't for the purpose of trying to figure out the answer. It was for Jesus to say, oh, no, 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 no. It's far more than you think. It's way more than they deserve. It's way more than you think you're going to keep track and record of. How many times do we extend forgiveness? (laughs) All the time. Everybody say all the time. time. Every time. Say every time. time. That's what it is. It's all the time, every time. Lord, how how often should I do it? Because there's got to be an end. There's got to be a time in which I don't have to do this anymore. And Jesus said, nope. Keep going. If you're presenting a gift or a sacrifice, this was the the ritual again, the the part of the law. They would go to Jerusalem. They would prepare their sacrifice to be able to bring and they'd stand in line for sometimes days and they'd, they'd bring it to the temple. And he says, but if you're at the altar, you've made it all the way there. You're next in line and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you. Now this isn't you Judging someone. This is someone has something against you. What does Jesus say? I want you to leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled with that person, then come back and offer your sacrifice to God. Okay, wait, God, hold on, hold on, hold on. What you're trying to tell me is that even if somebody's mad at me, for some reason, and the reason is stupid, God. I don't know if you know, but it's pretty stupid. If someone's mad at me, then even when I'm coming to offer you sacrifice from me to you, you're saying that if it comes to mind that I know they're mad at me about something that I should go make amends. That I should literally leave what we would all consider to be more important to go do something that we would consider less important. And God says, yeah. Yeah, because Paul would say later on, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Again, yeah, you can't control the other people; <laughs> you can't control everybody. But as much as it depends on you and me, leave it there and go. Jesus said to his disciples, "I want you to have faith in God." And then he goes and says, "I'm going to tell you the truth. You could say to a mountain." Be lifted up and thrown into the sea. Many great worship songs are written after this scripture, by the way. And we all love singing it. Yes, mountain be moved. Yes. Right? Thrown into the sea. And it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. And then he goes on to say this. And you can pray for anything. And if you believe that, you'll, that you've received it, it will be yours. Oh, name it and claim it is here. Okay? that's not that, that floods name it and claim it. But listen to this. Keep going. But when you're praying, first, you got to forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against, so that your father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Wait, wait. God, you're talking about my like my answers to prayer? My answers to prayer are going to be affected by by me holding grudges, by me holding unforgiveness? Yes. You wanna know why? Because unforgiveness is a sin. So he says, look, you're praying for faith, for mountains to be moved, you're praying for God to do an amazing work in your life, but you are still holding that thing against your mom, your sibling, your friend from college, your ex, and you're wondering why Maybe some of those things aren't happening. And it's because of the sin of unforgiveness. He says, first, you have to forgive. You know, we've all heard the pop psychology, and and we understand it up here. We don't get it here. That forgiveness really isn't about the other person. Forgiveness is all about you. It's all about you and your health. And Jesus is saying, oh, yeah, it's about that too. Because you need to forgive them so that God will forgive you even in your prayers. Now, here's an interesting, I'm I'm saying it's interesting. Most scholars, I'm going to tell you this real quick. Most scholars believe this is you know, not exactly the same person, but it could be. In the second letter back to the church in Corinth, there's a situation that came up. And Paul said, look, I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble in your church hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Like Paul's just acknowledging, look, somebody in your church made some issues and, and their sin and their stuff, and it hurts you so much, way more than me. Most of you opposed him and that was punishment enough. And then Paul says, now, however, though, it's, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I'm going to urge you now to reaffirm your love For him, for your brother and sister in Christ who has strayed, who has done something wrong, who's actually caused pain in your church, in your life. I wrote to you as I did to test you to see if you would fully comply with my instructions. I wanted to make sure you would deal with it the way you dealt with it, but I want you to know that when you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that Satan will not outsmart us. For we are all familiar with his evil schemes. What does the enemy want to do? He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. What's one of the ways he wants to do it? He wants to keep us bitter. He wants to keep us harboring unforgiveness in our hearts. Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them. Pray that God would bless them. Dear friends, never take revenge leave that for the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge and I will pay them back, says the Lord. Everyone's going to be standing an account. Everyone's going to have a personal account to God. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, I want you to feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If doing this, you're going to heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. Conquer it by doing the things that God has called us to do. I'll close with this quote. This is one of the reasons I want to, I love this quote, but I wanted to close with it just because of the words that, that he uses. This is from C.S. Lewis. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable. Why? Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Forgive the inexcusable. Practice wisdom by making peace. Forgiveness and no regrets, guys. This is these are just the tools for today. But the reason I wanted to finish with those words was because look, (laughs) we are all influenced by a surrounding culture that tells us that if something is inexcusable, then it doesn't need to be forgiven. That if there really is no reason for it, if it's inexcusable, then they deserve it. They deserve everything that they're gonna get. They deserve to be hated by you, judged by you, condemned by you, and everything else that goes with it because it was inexcusable. There's no good excuse for it. And yet, that's how God sees you. That's how he sees me. We had an inexcusable sin before God. That in His rich mercy and grace, He bestowed on us, so that we could give it to others. I know it's a much harder thing to grapple with today, especially when it comes to fractured, and broken relationships. But guys, we just—we really just want this to be helpful. Maybe there's a phone call you need to make. Maybe there's a letter you need to write. Maybe there's just some stuff you need to deal with with God and for the next several mornings on your knees battling through the choice to forgive the inexcusable that other people have perpetrated on you. I'm telling you, on the other side of that is going to be healthier, better relationships. And he wants it for you. He wants that for you. Let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful for the day beautiful day of celebrating just life change and baptisms. And even God, for the word in which we've read this morning, your word, that just, it's just hard sometimes for us to deal with because we don't want to forgive. It's too easy for us, God, to, in our just humanity, to to rush to judgment, especially when it aligns with you. And yet God, we are are in no position to condemn anyone. There's only one judge and it's you. So God, I just thank you, me, on behalf of me and on behalf of this church, we thank you for your kindness and your tolerance and your patience and your grace with how you deal with each one of us. God, may we be more and more like you, Jesus, to extend that to others especially in those broken and fractured relationships. it's your name we pray.